well. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm just going to move these back a bit because otherwise I will f I will fall over inevitably, and uh, I'll be on some YouTube video later. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Luke. Uh, I am a part-time youth worker here in Milton Keynes, um, and uh, yeah, this is my home, um, where I like to call home. Um, and just before I get started with my message, I really want to say a thank you. Um, I want to say thank you to um, Sarah, to Ezra, to Josh, to Hannah, and um, to uh, Mel, who help at my youth projects um, all around Milton Keynes. They have such a servant heart. Um, they really give up their time during the week for... That was going to be me. For, for, for no reward apart from the glory of God. Um, and I really do just want to give thanks to them um, because they change people's lives. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, no, bless them. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, funnily enough, I've been given the preach when Dylan's not here. So, um, no pressure on that one, but I've been told Tim and Brad will rugby tackle me if heresy is, is coming. He's getting his gum shield on. Um, but I just want to say it is a privilege to be preaching today. Um, John 3.1 says that, you know, not many should be teachers. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, it is a true privilege um, to be giving you the word today. Um, yeah, like, I'm not perfect. Um, I daily repent of all my past actions, um, and I'm sorry for those who I've hurt, but I uh, I am trying to be better. So, um, yeah, a recap. So last week we had we had an amazing guest pre preacher from Mauritius. So if anybody wants a uh, mission trip to Mauritius, then please someone sort it out, because I need to go there. Um, but four weeks ago, I'll go back to four weeks ago to, to catch us up. We had Diavolt have an incredible preach, um, teaching us that salvation is not sanctification. And salvation is faith and faith alone. And sanctification is faith and prayer. Um, and then Dylan taught us that the way we gain access to grace is by faith and not by our works. And then last uh, two weeks ago, Josh crushed it with his teachings on Romans 6, and he taught us that we're baptized into Jesus's death, um, and Josh used this incredible analogy with a pickle that I wish I could replicate, but I just can't, so you'll have to go back and watch, uh, listen to that. So today, we're in Romans 7. Now, Romans 7 is a theological mess. There's so much there that I can't cover today. So my heart is that if you guys can go home, study this letter, study it all the way through, come up with your own theories of what you think this means and that means, and don't take what I say as gospel, because I could have it wrong. And you guys have got to come up with that yourself. However, that being said, I am going to give you my opinion. So if you guys can turn to Romans 7 in your Bible, we'll look at the first section of it. So Romans 7.1 starts. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. 
So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, so, my brothers and sisters, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we are in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at works in us, so that we may bore fruit for death, but now by dying to what was once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. Amen. So the first part of Romans 7, Paul is speaking to a specific group of people. He's speaking to the Jews and those who know the law at the start. And we have to remember the context of this letter. This letter was not split up into chapters. It was read the entire way through without stopping. And I think this section was kind of a reminder, that nudge going, Jews, I'm speaking to you now. You know, this is the bit where you you, you perk up, you listen, and and because they may have gone to sleep. I mean, it was seven chapters in. This must have taken a good hour to read to start with. It doesn't mean, however, the Gentiles weren't listening. This is still applicable to non-Jews. It's just that bit where you go, you should be listening to this bit. So, so pay attention. Pay attention. So I want to look at the history of what the law is. For those who don't know what the law is, the law that Paul is speaking about was given to Moses on Mount Sinai at the start of the Bible. So the law is 613 commandments or rules that you can read through Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. They're in the wrong order, but anyway. At the start of the Bible. It's really long, and they cover everything, and I mean everything. If you're, if a donkey falls in a pit, whose responsibility is it to get it out of the pit? That is covered. But we don't follow these rules anymore. But these rules can still be split into three categories, because there's some that we do follow. The first category is the moral laws. Now, these are typically your Ten Commandments. You know, don't murder, don't steal, you know, love your God with all your heart. And Jesus taught on nine of them. And then the tenth, he only enhanced the teaching about the Sabbath and, and, and how you are still meant to heal people on the Sabbath because they still need help, even though it's the Sabbath. The next category is civil law. Now, these are your day-to-day regulations uh, for the Hebrew people, such as marriage, property rights, really boring stuff. However, it's also the bedrock of modern society. Judeo-Christian values is the modern, is the civil law. The fact that, you know, our criminal system is built upon the values that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai is incredible to me. We as 
not only Christians, but secular people still follow the civil law. We don't follow it as tight and we've moved it around and, you know, let it suit modern values, but it's still there. And then the final section is the ceremonial law. Now, this was specifically for the nation of Israel. And this, this is more, you know, your day, not your day-to-day living as such, but how are you going to clean your food? What are you going to do at festivals? And we're not talking Reading or Leeds. We're talking, you know, Passover and, and other festivals like that. And we don't follow these rules anymore, um, which luckily, thank you, because it has silly things like not wearing two um, types of clothing and, and mismatching. Now, we know double denim is an issue, but they want us to double denim in this. So we want to look at God's plan for the law. What, what did God, why did God give Moses these laws? And why do we now not follow them? So if we could bring up Exodus 19.5, Chile. God wanted us to be set apart from the world. He wanted us, he wanted, as the people went through in, uh, in the old times, that you could go, that's my follower. That's a Jew. They follow me. And not just these these random people that you go, oh, you know, I follow God, but you don't live like you follow God. And that's why he gave us these, these rules. And Exodus 19.5 says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. God wanted that relationship with us from day dot. He before Jesus came, he still wanted a relationship with us. He wanted us to follow his covenant and be close to him. And he just gave us the laws to do it. The laws are a moral standard of right and wrong in God's eyes. There's no if, buts, or maybes on this. This is God's eyes for the moral standard. You can, you can have an argument and a discussion about, oh, should you think this and that should be legal? But this is, this is what God says, and I'm not going to argue with God. The issue that the Romans had was that they had both Jews and Gentiles together in one place, in one church, or multiple life groups as such, and churches. And they were bringing their, their faith from their previous you know, faiths into Christianity. And they say they had the scripture and the teachings, but they didn't have the discipleship. We see it a lot in modern-day Africa and, and all these mission fields where they'll go out and they'll give them Bibles, but then they won't teach them how to use the Bibles in modern life and how to learn Christianity. And so the Romans had this issue where they were going with two extremes of it. They had, oh, I'm going to butcher this, anononianism, Absolutely smashed it. You exactly know what it is, Brad, don't you? Which is someone who is completely against the law. They don't want to follow it. They think they have free reign to do whatever they like. It's just modern-day liberalism. Um, and, but they believe in the end that they're saved by Jesus. And then they have the Jews who are built in this legalism. For years they've been taught, we've got to follow the rules. We've got to stick to all 613 commandments and sacrifice in this way and not wear double denim. Or, or, and, and it wasn't working. And so you literally have two ends of the spectrum sat around a table next to each other. And Paul is asking for a balance of both. He's asking, yes, follow the Ten Commandments, but don't get hurt up on the 
other three, uh, 603. And that's where we move into uh, verse 7. Because you may be asking me, Luke, I don't know the law. I've never followed the law. So how does this affect me? Because as I say, the Gentiles were still being taught this. They were still listening to this letter. So as we go on, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in every kind of produced in me every time every kind of coveting for apart from the law sin was dead once i was alive apart from the law but when the commandment came sin sprang to life and i died i found that the the very commandment that was intended to bring me life actually brought me death for sin seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Now, you may be thinking, what does that even mean? And I'm going to be honest, I ain't got a bleeding clue. I, 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 I really don't know. It, there's a lot there, um, and I really recommend going through that, spending the next seven weeks going through it, and then after Christmas, come and tell me, because you're saving me a lot of hassle. But we have to work out why the Romans are falling into sin. And, and it stems from this idea that although they've been baptized and they've got a new soul and they're made new in Christ, their bodies aren't. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of how in the new Jerusalem, we will have new bodies and we will have new souls and we will be fresh creation in Christ. But currently, we're not there. Currently, we have our old bodies that are susceptible to sin because our old bodies are broken and from this world. So sin is still coming in. Sin, sin is still attacking us. And Paul claims here that he would not know what sin is without the law. But the idea of, and the idea of committing a sin only came to mind because of the law. This is a this is a questionable one, but the law that God gave straight away in Genesis 2 to Adam and Eve, was that's a commandment, do not eat fruit from that tree. That is the law. It may not be the law that Moses was given, but it is a law. Now, statistically, if we know what a rule is, we don't follow it. And I've got facts to back it up. The best example is speeding. Now, hands up here who speeds. Truth. Truthful people. Thank you very much. On a single carriageway road, you have the national speed limit, which is a, a white circle with a, a black cross through it. On a single carriageway road, what is the speed limit? 60. 60. Great. We've, we've passed our theory test. Unless you're in a van, well, yeah, we're not, we're not getting, we're not going there, Drew. Eleven percent of people speed on on single carriageway roads. Now, 
what if I was to tell you that when you are told what the speed limit is with a number, that number jumps to 51% of people? So half of you have just lied to me in saying that you didn't speed because statistically that's an anomaly. And when we believe the speed limit is silly, so 20 mile an hour, who speeds in a 20 mile an hour zone? Statistically, it's 87% of you. 87% of people speed in 20 mile an hour zones. This tells us one of two things. Either Paul's point is correct, or speed limits should be abolished. 20 is not plenty. No, I ain't going nowhere in a 20. When we set ourselves up with rules and we focus really hard on following the rules, somehow we don't follow them. And it doesn't really make any sense, but it's true. When you set yourself the rule to, I'm going to read my Bible this day, every single day, and then you get you miss a day, and you're like, I'm going to double read it next day. You're setting yourself up for a punishment, and then all of a sudden, you're six days down the line, you've got to do seven Bible readings, and you just don't do it. But if you wanted to actively read that Bible yourself, and you, you, weren't, you were more flexible with it, you were more gracious with it, and you weren't set up with laws and rules, then you're more likely to read it and you're more likely to enjoy reading it and not beat yourself up when you're down. If we move on to verse 18. For I know, uh, for I know that, it, that good itself does, uh, does not dwell within me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that is in me, uh, no, for I do not do what I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is, that makes no sense to me, but anyway. <laughs> Carry on on verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that I am subject to death? Now, this is the main bit that I want you guys to research at home, because there are loads of theories about what Paul is saying here. A few people are slightly confused on this, because this is Paul saying, what a wretched man I am. And yet the previous chapter, in chapter 6, he talks about the glory of freedom in God, you know, free from sin, and now he's talking that he's a wretched man. I personally don't understand this, chap this, this theory, because I know in my own life that I know I'm free from sin, and I know that Jesus has died for me, and yet I still hurt people. I still make mistakes. I still do no good, even though I'm saved in Christ. So that theory, we can chuck that one out the window. The second theory is that when Paul says, I, he's actually not talking about himself. He's talking about whoever's reading this letter. Because we have to look at the context behind this letter. And for that, I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 16. We haven't got to read it, but there's spoilers in there. 
chapter 16 is a list of all these really long names and saying thank you to them and thank you to Sharon and thank you to Matilda and all that. And someone has painstakingly gone through every single name and worked out where they're from, what their heritage is, what their background is, what their socioeconomic status is, and worked out that these people should not be together with each other. That statistically, you have slaves and slave masters sat around a table. You have the illiterate and the educated. You have the Greeks and the Arabs. They're all sat within community with each other. The church in Rome wasn't this big Sunday service at a temple. It was primarily small groups meeting in people's houses. And it wasn't also the richest person with the biggest house. You would have the rich and the educated, they would be going to the houses of the people in poverty. There was no discrimination. They would sit around a table, discuss the letter that Paul had sent them, and see what it means. And this is where the I comes from. I think it's this, this idea that Paul is, is trying to relate to, um, to the people reading it. Have that moment of self-reflection. Build that up in them. So that they think, maybe I am like that. Who has saved me? Who has saved me? Because after all, the law is just tells us what is crooked. It doesn't help us to straighten it out. When Paul is talking about the law, he's, he's asking, who saves me? My personal understanding of this letter, you have to look at it in the context of what Paul has just written. The first section that we looked at, we talk about the law and how we fail to meet God's expectations for the law. The second part is Paul's relationship with the law Without the law, he wouldn't know what sin is. And the third is this realization from Paul, how far he is from the law, how far he is from Christ-like, this, this, this goal of becoming more like Christ, how far he sloops down. And I think that's a realization that we all go through from time to time, this, this idea that I'm not good enough, that I'm far from God, that God doesn't love me. And I think... That, that this, this, this battle cry from Paul, this, this cry of pain, Paul has understood that he has hurt people in his past life. He was murdering the people that he's now writing to, their families, and he was truly persecuting them. And he has repented to the Lord, and yet he's still haunted by it. There's still a voice in his head that says, you're not good enough, you're a sinner. And I believe that to be the devil. The devil is there doubting you. He's there to come and steal, kill, and destroy. He will come at the night. He'll come when you're not ready. And we need to be prepared in the knowledge that Jesus died for us. The knowledge that Jesus is there with open arms every time we sin and we go back to him. And we have to remember daily about that freedom. So what can we take from chapter 7? We are free. Jesus came and died for our sins. He did it so that he didn't do it so that we could keep on sinning. He did it so that we have the freedom and glory that God destined for us to have. It's easy to become super legalistic 
having been justified by Jesus, we want to make progress. We want to become better people. And the idea of, and then having a spiritual do's and don'ts list of, oh, I must go to church, I must uh, tithe, I must read the word, I'm, I must stop smoking, I must block porn. Don't get me wrong, these are great goals, and you absolutely should try and work towards them. However, it can make your faith a joyless religion of law and duty rather than a relationship with Jesus. We need to give ourselves rules but not beat ourselves down when we slip and break them. I, when, when Jesus says to the lady um, at the well, go no more and, you know, and stop sinning, that's not a moment of condemnation there. That's a moment of, I've, I've saved you, change your life. We need to follow both the law and God's grace and therefore not follow into this moral legalism um, or religious, uh, sorry, moral liberalism or religious legalism. And verse 25 sums this up perfectly. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Delivers me. Not delivered. It's not past tense. He is constantly saving me. He is always there for me. He's constantly delivering me. Remember, if you take one thing from this, that Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Alpha and the Omega, came down to heaven to die for our sins, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So, if I could invite the worship team up. Nice short service. This is, this is how it should be. <laughs> Not 54 minutes. If you guys don't know Jesus and you want to know of the freedom that we speak of and you want to know of the open arms that are there for when you make a mistake and the incredible love of God, I want to ask you today, do you want to make that step? Do you want to take that step in and love and, and receive that love from God? Are you, are you bound by your own rules? Are you bound by the rules that you're setting yourself that you're inevitably going to fail because you're trying to do it all by yourself? So I just ask, if we can end in prayer, Lord, Jesus, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you sent your son to die for us. Lord, I pray that people are not restricted by their own rules, their own laws, and they learn to know the freedom that they have in you. Lord, I thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we can all repent for our past mistakes and know that Jesus has covered the cost of them. Lord, I pray as we go here from, from here today, that we enjoy our summer, we enjoy the, the, the rest of our Sunday. Jesus.
and I just pray as we go into the week, we don't try and create laws and rules for ourselves. And we just follow your grace. We follow what you want us to do. We build that relationship with you. That in that relationship, we are better people as a day. <coughs> Amen.